0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by our longtime friend and member, Scotty Miser. Well, first, can we just give Julie a hand for breaking that one? Yeah, (laughs) That that was a lot of names. And a lot of times when she would ask me how to pronounce it, I could only say, well, this is how I'm pronouncing it. I don't know if it's right. Um yeah, this is a wild passage, this is a random passage, but I think it's an important one, I think it's an instructive one, and I think it's a fun one. So as we enter into this today, would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it draws us nearer to you. May it draw us nearer to each other. Into your world, thank you for who you are and what you do. In your name, Amen. So, in terms of the plot of what was just read, is anyone confused? Because I, I was. I had to read it a couple times, and I actually had to graph it out to keep track of who all the players were, uh, because. If you're like me, when you read those strange names, it just kind of translates as static in your brain, and so it's hard to keep track of who's who and what's what. I'm gonna do my best to tell this story with all the context that we have, and I'll try to explain what it means to Abram, I'll try to explain what it might mean to Israel, and I'll try to explain what it means to us. But if you get nothing else, I would ask that you take this away that God is working where you least expect it. If you take nothing else from the story of Melchizedek, just take that God is working where you least expect it. Amen? Okay. So, who the heck is Melchizedek? That is the question of the hour, and it's the one we're going to try to answer. I'm going to try to tell the story in under 10 minutes. Okay? So, keep me honest. Kyle, if you would. We're cutting off a whole bunch of context because I don't think it actually serves our purposes here. Just know that in the ancient world, two things are true. One, a king is not necessarily a king. By that, I mean, don't think of a palace and a crown. Think of a local chieftain. Think of people who've got enough to call themselves a king, but not so much that anyone would care enough to take that title away. And also, in the ancient world, conflict is the rule and peace is the exception. Okay? Abram is going to be neck deep in the petty conflicts of the ancient world. And we're going to join him. So then, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, as we all know, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Keterleomer, king of Elam, title king of Goyim, Amraphel king of Shinar, and Arioth king of Elisar, four kings against five. So Kyle, if you would bring up that slide. These are our teams, okay? We have the four kings, we have the five kings, they're also called the latter kings. In order to get some investment in here, because I know these are just a whole bunch of names. This side, you are Team Four Kings, okay? Yeah. So let's make some noise with the Four Kings. <laughs> yeah, Four Kings! All right, and Raphael, Ariok. It's, it's, it's been a good season for Ariok. Okay, Shinar, baby. <laughs> some, some real Shinar heads over here. Over here, you guys are ladder kings, alright? Can we make some noise for the ladder kings? Alright! Okay, Birsha, Shannab, Shemaver and Bera, and Bella, that is Zoar. Holy cow, what's gonna happen? What's gonna go down? The four kings and the ladder kings, they are coming up against each other because of skirmishes that are not really important for us. But they're fighting. Who do we think is gonna win? Well, the passage does actually give us a hint about who we should be rooting for. Um, I'm sorry, latter kings, but um, all of these kings appear in the historical record, except for two of them, Uh, King of Bera and Bersha. They don't appear anywhere other than in this scripture, and their names literally mean evil and in wickedness in the original (laughs) Hebrew. (laughs) So Genesis has made it pretty easy for us to find out who we should root for. But let's see what happens. Kyle. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. So who is our victor? The latter kings have fallen into the tar pits, which is not something I thought could happen to anything but prehistoric animals. So that's the picture I put up there. Ladder kings have fallen into the tar pits, and the four kings have won! Way to go, guys! Okay, and what have they won? What are they taking home, Kyle? They are taking lots! They're taking all of the money, they're taking the food, and they're taking Abram's nephew, Lot, and also due to unfortunate ancient definitions of what possessions are, this probably also includes Lot's wife and his two daughters. Happy Mother's Day. I'm sorry. Uh, The four kings have won against the latter kings. What's going to happen now? Well, by taking Lot, the four kings might not know this they've made a powerful enemy. And that's of Abram, Lot's uncle. Kyle, would you go to the next line? A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. If you are just learning now that Abram had 318 trained men at his disposal, you're not alone. Um, These men are not mentioned anywhere else in Genesis. Abram is not really depicted as as a warlord anywhere else but here. But who is our enemy now? Kyle, if you go to the next slide. We have a new fight. And it is now between the four kings, make some noise, four kings, and Abram and company. All right, let's hear it. Okay, Abram and the 318 trained men are gonna come up against them. Who's gonna win? Let's see. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hola, north of Damascus, and he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot, and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. <laughs> Everyone who's not Lot. Uh, after Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, That is the king's valley. Okay, so what went down, Kyle? Abram wins! Yeah. yeah! We got Lot, we got the family, we got the other people, and all the food and the money and the goods have been recovered by Abram.
1: So, what's going to happen
0: now? Well, now Abram has a bunch of stuff that belongs to the king of Sodom, including Lot, including the goods, including the other people, and they're going to meet in the king's valley. The assumption here would be that we would negotiate, right? Abram would probably not give the king of Sodom all of the stuff, but maybe some. So let's see how it turns out between this conflict. A new player has entered the game. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying... Blessed be Abram, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So what went down? The king of Sodom said to Abram, "Uh, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten, and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Esh, and Mamre, let them have their share. So what goes down? In the middle of this tense negotiation, Kyle, Melchizedek comes in, out of nowhere, Uh, a king we have not heard about before, the king of Salem, he interrupts this negotiation, he gives Abram a blessing, he gives Abram bread, he gives Abram wine, and Abram gives him 10% of everything. And... Just in case you're wondering, should I be rooting for Melchizedek, or is Melchizedek a threat? Well, Genesis thankfully makes that clear for us as well. Kyle, if you go to the next slide. Melchizedek just means righteous king, Melchizedek. So whoever Melchizedek is, he's a good guy. (laughs) Whoever Melchizedek is, he's on Abram's side. He shows up, he blesses, he feeds Abram, and then he leaves. Next slide, Kyle. And then the negotiation is allowed to resume. King of Sodom, I imagine, has a little trouble recovering from that random interruption, but eventually he says, you can keep the stuff, and Abram says, no. No, take it all. I'll, I'll I'll only take the food that we ate. I'll only take the share of the men who fought with me but I don't want to be on the hook and owing you anything in the future. And that's it! Kyle, that's the whole story of Melchizedek. Let's give our fighters a hand. It was a good fight, a good conflict, a lot of twists. (laughs) There's a whole lot going on. Melchizedek appears suddenly, randomly, and without explanation. And I think he lets us know that God is working where you least expect it. Amen? Right. So what does Melchizedek mean to Abram in this context? Kyle, next slide here. Who the heck is Melchizedek to Abram? To Abram, Melchizedek is a reminder that the promise does not end with him. Abram is neck deep in the the petty and violent politics of local chieftains. And he's received the promises of God. But he'd be tempted, I think, to get frustrated. It's like, oh my gosh, Lot got into trouble again. I have to go rescue Lot. Lot. I don't even really like Lot. Abram would be tempted to hold on to what he has and really just damn the rest of the world. All these kings fighting, and now they're making trouble for me? But Melchizedek, as a random and unprecedented, as God's grace, Melchizedek, this righteous king, pops up, and if nothing else, he reminds Abram that he's not alone. He reminds Abram that there's good in the world because there is God in the world. Amen? Wherever Melchizedek started this priesthood, wherever Melchizedek began his worship of the Most High God, we don't see any real connection to Abram, the man who received the promise. So I think to Abram, What Melchizedek does is he breaks the equation of me and mine against the world. We've probably never gotten into violent conflicts with local chieftains, but I think we've all felt that feeling. It's like, the world is out to get me. Everything is just stacked against me. But once Melchizedek shows up, it's no longer about defeating the kings or keeping everything you can. It's about pursuing the righteousness of God. And in my experience, I think that's true. I think nothing breaks up hostility, nothing confuses tension like love, like a random gift scotching over the lines of division and power. A while ago, this, a video went viral of a man who, like Melchizedek, broke up a fight with food. Have you guys seen this one? Kyle, if you go to the next slide. Security camera footage. Man walks out of the pizza restaurant, these two are already fighting, and he doesn't fight one or the other, He breaks them up, and he gives them pizza. (laughs) And the rest of the video plays out, the men go on their way. (laughs) It turns out, whatever it was that brought them to the ground, it was able to be solved with pizza. (laughs) So if you really want to emulate Melchizedek, break up a fight with food. Oh, yeah. Take that bread, take that $5, and confuse hostility with your kindness. And believe that God is working where you least expect it. Amen? Amen. So I think that's who Melchizedek is to Abram. But how, if you go to that next slide, who the heck is Melchizedek to the Israelites? Now this is where it gets a little bit trickier and we have to realize who this book would be written for the book of genesis wasn't being written as the events happened the book of genesis was written later as a reminder to the people of israel as a reminder of where they came from and the promises god would have for them as they escaped slavery So they would be the ones reading this story. Story of Melchizedek popping up out of nowhere. And I think the answer to this question, who the heck is Melchizedek to the Israelites? I think to the Israelites, if I were to read this story, I've escaped slavery, I've wandered into the wilderness with nothing but the shirt on my back. I think to the Israelites, to me, Melchizedek would be an encouragement in a land of hostility. because this passage points forward to the present tense of the Israelites. Kyle, if you go to the next thing, why is it weird that Melchizedek calls himself a priest? Because priests and tithes are not mentioned until Exodus. We don't get a priesthood beginning until much later. So when Melchizedek says, I'm a priest of God most high, and Abram says, here's 10% of everything, that doesn't really make sense. Aaron hasn't been born yet. The tribe of Levi hasn't been started yet. We don't have a priesthood. And I know we mesh all these books together, right? Because they're so close in our Bible. But there is a thousand years between the promise of Abraham and the promise of Moses. Melchizedek saying, I am a priest of God Most High, would be like someone in the Middle Ages with an iPhone. The distance is that vast. If we read a story of someone on the bio tapestry holding an iPhone, it's it's what we call an anachronism. This shouldn't make sense. This is placed out of time. This is out of order. And there's theories among scholars that this may have been a way for the Israelite priests to legitimize their practice. To say, see, we're we're not making this up. There There was priests before us and they're doing the same thing that we're doing now. There was this guy named Righteous King. You trust him, right? I think that's very possible. But I think it's also an encouragement to strangers in a strange land. Not just to trust these new practices, but to trust the wandering. To trust that even in the conflict and the struggle of passing into someplace new, there might just be a stranger who pops out of nowhere and calls you a friend. It's possible that someone will just pop up, bless you and give you food. This world, which is so large and so scary, maybe it doesn't have to be. So to the Israelites, Melchizedek is encouragement in a land of hostility. And it's a reminder that God is working where you least expect it. Amen? Amen. What does any of that mean to us? the heck is Melchizedek to Christians? It turns out, quite a lot. There is more writing in the New Testament about Melchizedek than there is writing in the Old Testament about Melchizedek. Which doesn't take much. Like, we just pretty much read everything the Old Testament has to say about Melchizedek. And I I had to ask um, one of my Jewish coworkers, who we have we, we talk, we have interfaith dialogues all the time and I loved her during lunch one day and I said hey uh, Judy can I ask you a question about the Torah and she said sure I, I probably don't have an answer and I said no no, no that's fine and Judy's like she's, she's practicing she knows she knows the stuff And I said, what's the deal with Melchizedek? And she said, who? (laughs) So if you've never heard of this guy before, you'd be forgiven. And if you've only read the Hebrew scriptures, yeah, it's kind of easy to forget Melchizedek. But to Christians, Melchizedek very quickly becomes a prelude to Christ. Kyle, if you go to that next slide. So, I kind of lied when I said Genesis 14 is the only mention of Melchizedek. There is actually one other insertion in Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of of Melchizedek. This is a contested translation because of the way the Hebrew language works. They might not be saying Melchizedek, the name. They might be saying Melchizedek, a righteous king. But a lot of translators will choose to translate that to the name of Melchizedek. And in the context of Psalm 110, it's this dialogue between God, And someone, God and some Lord, whose identity is not made clear in that psalm. But God says to that person, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is going to take this and run with it. All of Hebrews 7 and much of Hebrews 8 is about Melchizedek and what it means for Jesus. Kyle, if you go to that next slide. So Hebrews starts out by saying, by telling the story from Genesis 14. Starts reminding us of this very minor episode, this minor character. This Melchizedek, says the author, was king of Salem, priest of God Most High, he did not trace his descent from Levi, which was the priestly tribe, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And he goes on to say, We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. The true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not a mere human being. That's a lot very quickly, but who's he talking about? Who's this high priest? Said it, Sunday school answer. Jesus, Jesus, yes, thank you, yes! This high priest is Jesus. Now this wouldn't make sense to a Jewish audience because... Because priesthood is defined by lineage. You have to be from the tribe of Levi to be a priest. You have to be descended from Moses' brother Aaron to be a priest. And so to make this argument that Jesus is our new high priest, the writer of Hebrews has to go all the way back to Genesis 14 and says, oh yeah, every priest has to be from the tribe of Levi." What about Melchizedek? What about that weird guy? (laughs) (laughs) And we're kind of left at a loss. It's like, I don't know. What about Melchizedek? And the writer of Hebrews is going to say, no, look. Something was going on in unexpected places in Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, we met a high priest who does not come from high birth. Who does not have an important backstory, and yet he's a king, and yet he's a priest, and he offers a blessing. This is the order of priests that Jesus belongs to. Like Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was not born into the tribe of Levi. Born in the tribe of Judah. It's not a priestly tribe. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is able to bless. He has the authority to bless humanity through the name of God Most High. And what does Jesus come offering? He offers blessing, yes. He offers comfort and food. But what does he offer it's not merely bread and wine kyle would you go to that next slide jesus is the king jesus is the high priest and jesus is the sacrifice melchizedek is a prelude to christ And it's a prelude to the way that Christ would give of himself. Like Melchizedek, Jesus is a reminder that the promises of Abraham do not end with Abraham, they continue onward and outward. Like Melchizedek, to the Israelites, Jesus is an encouragement in a land of hostility He frustrates those who hate him by showing them love. But he does not merely offer bread and wine. He does not merely offer prayers. He does not merely offer pizza. Christ offers himself. God is working God is working where you least expect it, amen if he doesn't if God doesn't work in the unexpected places none of this makes sense so I want to challenge you guys this week if you go to the next slide if there's ways this week that you can be Melchizedek find Melchizedek. How can you be Melchizedek? I think in a lot of the ways that Amanda was talking about, offering kindness to strangers, even offering kindness to hostile strangers. Take that cash and bless someone who doesn't deserve it. Confuse antagonism. Break up fights with food. Offer the traffic lane to the person who cut you off. Confuse antagonism. Be unrealistically kind. Because this is more than just kindness, these are the promises of God. And how can we find Melchizedek? I would say look for the peacemakers. Look for those who settle disputes with love. And in the same way that Christ did, look for those who point to something beyond themselves, to the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, for the times we felt like strangers in a strange land, For the times when we felt frustrated. When we felt neck deep in petty disputes in our work or in our lives. And for the time we felt alone. And we felt like none of Christ's life, for example, makes sense. God remind us of Melchizedek. Remind us of the power of a random blessing, and remind us of your love, which you followed to death, even death on a cross. Thank you for who you are, and what you do. In your name, Amen. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.